Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. I'm so glad to have Jason Prohl here with me. We are in the beautiful island of Sardinia, which is the ideal place to talk about health and longevity as we have one of the world's healthiest people living here. So welcome to my podcast, Jason. Yeah, thanks for having me. Jason is a former mechanical engineer turned entrepreneur, filmmaker and health optimization practitioner. And due to 20 years of his own health challenges, Jason was given the opportunity to discover the reality behind his symptoms. And he began working remotely with people around the world to provide solutions for those suffering from complex health issues that their doctors were unable to resolve. And his lessons of health optimization and lifestyle medicine have culminated in a free online documentary film series called The Humanity, The Human Longevity Project. So you've filmed over two years and uh, I think in nine countries and I read somewhere in over 60 cities to make this Human Longevity documentary film series. And you did this to analyze the world's healthiest populations through the lens of, of a modern uh, science. And I was thinking it must have been extraordinary to bring together over 90 or so of the world's leading uh, researchers, doctors, authors, practitioners, and so on, to discuss how we can live a longer, happier, healthier life. So, Jason, what did you learn? And I'm also thinking, what surprised you also during this journey? This film came about because I had my own inclinations, right? This hunch about the way things were. And in the US and a lot of the Western cultures, we have a focus on disease. So this, I think, is a big problem because we're not focused on what we can do to foster health. And those are two very different things, resolving disease and fostering health. And so this is why we went around the world to speak with the healthiest people that we could find and from all different cultures. That way there's not this cultural bias on health. And what you tend to find is the same things pop up in each region. You know, we were in Okinawa, we were in Ikaria, Greece, in Sardinia, of course. This is about last year, so this is almost the anniversary that we were here in Sardinia and in Costa Rica. And you find the same things creep up through the culture and through the dietary practices, which is that there's a simplicity, there's a fundamental capacity for the way that they live that fosters health. And this includes good community and connection with the families. It includes simple living. Um, so this avoidance of excess, of abundance that we see in a lot of Western cultures. There's no need to compete with each other, especially in your local community or families. Mm -hmm. So everybody's working together on the most basic levels. And of course they eat simply, they don't rush around. And this was probably the most profound realization for me coming from the US, very familiar with big city living. Everything is a rush, time is money. Um, so oftentimes, even though it's only two miles to the grocery store or somewhere, you would drive. And that's not really needed. But yet this is what we do because everybody else does it. Our cities are designed for driving, not walking. And you needed to get there quick because you have other things to do. When we showed up in Costa Rica for the first time in Nicoya, in the peninsula there, there's a feeling that you can't describe. You just have to be there to understand it, which is that time slows down. So we were there for work. We had lots of things to do. We had 10 days. We had to find these you know, older people, we had to talk to them through translators. We had, there was work and there's a limited time. So in theory, we should have been stressed, but because the environment was so calm, you know, they have this Pura Vida, which is this pure life motto there, but it infects you. The pace of the living infects you. So even if you try to rush everywhere and around you is calm and that the cities and towns and villages are designed to sort of be calm. And so there was this quality of time that was very fascinating that you can only feel. You know, much like uh, they say in the US anyway, time flies when you're having fun, right? We've all experienced this time dilation, right? Or time contraction. And it's a really weird experience. But when you're in places like Costa Rica or Icaria, Greece, 
time slows down to such a pace that the calmness infects you and you can't get around it. And when we got back from Costa Rica and into the US, immediately I felt like I was late for something. And this was probably the biggest realization that I had because this is not something you can study in a, in a scientific paper. You'll never describe this any other way except for feeling it. And even now, as I'm talking about this, you can mentally sort of understand this, but to feel it was very profound to come back to the US and immediately feel like time is sped up and I'm late for something. So it was a really enjoyable experience talking to so many people in their 90s and, and beyond 100 was, it was special to me because this wasn't something that I get a lot, a lot of chance to do, especially in the US. We don't have a lot of 100 year olds that we can just go down the street and talk to. So hearing the historical context of health, historical context of the way that they lived was very cool to hear. And with the ex experts that we brought on, we were able to sort of flush this out and understand why it's so important for health, the way that they were living. So, but if your studies altogether prove that we all can actually live long, happy, healthy lives, virtually free from chronic disease, why don't we, or what do we need to do to get there? I guess that's part of the documentary series. But. Yeah, it's a definitely, there's a lot of things that we can do, but fundamentally, I think, and of course my, my views are United States centric, right? So they all come from the way that I understand living, but I've traveled a lot and a lot of other countries that I've been to, aside from this project, follow some of these practices. They live a little bit more simply. There's no need for excess and abundance so I think that's sort of step one. And we were seeing this in the West a little bit, this minimalist movement, right? This idea of, of reducing these things that we have in our life. But I think it also extends beyond the material world into things like our emotional states, things that are entering our minds. We have too much going on right now. And I think we need to slow down with everything that we're doing. So I think we need to revert back to some of this older way of thinking. But also we need to engage the natural world. This is something that I think unfortunately is going in the wrong direction. For most places in the West, even in the places that we visited, technology is entering these places. We're spending more time inside, more time in front of computers, more time under artificial lighting. And this may not seem like a big deal, but if we understand that in Costa Rica, prior to 1970, these villages didn't have electricity. They didn't have lights and TVs and computers and the ability to transport food long distances. So this modern lifestyle that we've created for ourselves, we have to make a conscious effort, I think, to get back out and engage the natural world, to slow down, to engage each other, because this is another thing that technology is starting to do to us, is separate us. And it connects us in social media, but it disconnects us from many other aspects that would normally involve community, things like eating. I can now, through my phone, order food to be delivered right to my door, in a matter of minutes and don't have to cook, I don't have to prepare, I don't have to grow any food, I don't have to do any of that. But I think we can use technology more intelligently. What if we were able to order food and come together into a place somewhere in our neighborhood? So there's, there's all kinds of opportunities, I think, for us to connect using technology and using this modern uh, direction that we're going. We just have to retool our thinking a little bit. And this requires a little bit of awareness to the importance of it and this cultural shift, which I think can take time because I think we have to recognize that unfortunately, or fortunately, individual health is not an individual act. It is a collective act. If we treat our environment poorly, the environment will then impact us. This is inevitable. It's a mirror. It's a two-way mirror. Mm -hmm. If we treat other people poorly, we will get impacted. This is the sort of the law of nature. So we have to bring everything together collectively and think about the collective health for our individual health. But how will you go about reaching your goals of educating, empowering, inspiring, hopefully millions of people? What's your, let's say, next step beyond uh, the documentary? What do you have in the pipeline as idea? Well, that's a good question. We're trying to figure that out. We've got coursework in mind that we want to put together. We have a few more films that we want to put together as well. Mm -hmm. I've taken the approach of letting things sort of organically take shape. So there's a lot of things knocking on the door right now. But at the end of the day, I think my main mission personally is to hopefully educate and inspire a more philosophical, cultural message, because I think this is what's missing. 
science is going in a great direction in terms of the capacities that, that we'll be able to you know, engage. But what we're missing, I think, is the philosophy behind human health and the engagement, especially in the West. Anything that's going to allow me to sort of work in that space, that's kind of where, where I'm going with this. How would you define your um, passion in the sense that something that you are really, really willing to even suffer for if needed? That's a good question. I think my passion really involves bringing humanity back to the individual. And this sounds weird, but what I see, people are so disconnected from themselves, so disconnected from each other, so disconnected from the planet, that we need to restore this. And I think, you know, when I worked one-on-one with people for their own personal health, these messages that I shared with them, they resonated so strongly, even though they were so simple, that I think it was almost obvious. They just needed somebody to point it out, to go outside and engage the natural world. So simple, so easy to get up in the morning and go outside and go for a walk and get the sun in your eyes and on, on your skin. This is very profound for health, but it's so basic. And so there's a lot of these simple messages that I think people are ready to hear, they want to hear, they just need to understand why they work and how, how to engage them. So for me, it's retooling the entire way we think about health and medicine in the West, how we think about disease. And there's a lot of layers to this. There's doctors that need education because they were not trained to think about health. In fact, most medical textbooks don't contain any definition for health. That's a big problem. So we have experts, we have doctors, we have professionals that are, that are willing to come over to the side of, of health, but they've never been given the training or the education. And so my passion really is to just transform the way health, medicine, uh, disease, how this is all thought of in the United States in particular. And going back to you, what would you say are your transformational points in your life that have kind of influenced you the most? There's been a few. I think the health challenges that I dealt with when I was 13, I had knee issues that were chronic and nobody could understand. In my 20s, I had skin issues that were chronic and nobody could give me advice on how to deal with. So these forced me in two directions. One, to recognize that the systems that were in place were not there. They weren't designed to heal chronic issues. They weren't there to help me. And so I had to sort of turn my back on the traditional medical model for chronic disease. So that was very influential in, in understanding and my thinking. It also taught me that these things weren't necessarily designed to help me. In other words, there are corporate interests and medical interests and money interests that are really entrenched and not necessarily for the benefit of me, which was an emotionally difficult thing to understand, right? Because as you start to peel this back and see it for what it is, it kind of hits you pretty hard, understanding how deep it goes in government, in corporate interests. And so that shifted my thinking. And at first it was disempowering to understand that, but then there was the empowering understanding that I can do this on my own. And I have the capacity to figure this out. And so as I uncovered that, that really changed the way I operated. And then I would say another key point in my life and my work and everything that I was doing was as a mechanical engineer for 10 years, there came a point where I, it wasn't obvious and it wasn't conscious, but there was a desire to leave that profession and go in a different direction. And it showed up in frustration, anger, you know, these emotions that were kind of boiling up inside me until I finally had the courage and sort of strength to go in a different direction. And so that really showed me that, that I was being given these messages for a long time. They started off as whispers and then they grew a little bit louder. And then eventually, because I wasn't listening to my intuition or to this higher voice, they were slapping me upside the head. And so finally, when I listened and I went in a new direction, everything started to unfold in a, in a better way. So that taught me that there is a really strong intuition there that if we just listen, if we open our hearts to what's really being said to us, then we can really start to unleash the things that we have inside. And so this is a constant message. And this ties really well into health because a lot of people are doing things that they don't really want to do. They're married or with people they don't really want to be with. The job that they do is not really a passion for them. It doesn't really open them up. So I think this is a big message that we need to get back in touch with to recognize that we have this intuition. There are things that are inside of us. And if we just have the courage and strength to, to listen to that and follow that, then good things happen.
Typically what people experience is that they don't know how to access that, let's call it intuition or their some kind of a deeper level of themselves to understand more who they are and so on, to get that voice, to get that inspiration. Yeah, and it takes a little practice. What is your recommendation in terms of how to access that? The first thing that we have to recognize is that we have to trust it, right? I think more of us have it than we recognize. But we've been taught, especially in the US anyway, we've been taught to suppress it. Don't listen to that. We've been taught to think with our heads. You know, what's the smart decision? What, you know, so we're thinking in the wrong terms. And so I think sometimes it can be very, very small things. But if you have an, that inkling, that little nudge in a small decision, just trust it and see where it goes. So I think it can start small. It doesn't have to be this big grandiose thing. But also, I think we have to give ourselves permission to recognize that when something is screaming at us very loudly, that it is in our best interest to follow that. And it can be a really difficult decision. It can be cutting off a family member. I've seen people heal by eliminating poor relationships with their family or fixing poor relationships with their family. So there are these things that come up and I think we just have to start to listen to them. And as you start to practice and build this muscle of uh, trusting that intuition, I think the feedback is so good that you just, you can't help but follow it. So it can start with something small and, and using things like meditation is, is fantastic. That can come in the form of dreams or there's that thing that you just, you already know it. You're just afraid to acknowledge it. So sometimes it just is that courage to just jump a little bit. It happens to me frequently that I, without even knowing the person, I have a feeling that I will have something very interesting to say or talk to that person about. That's a great example, actually. I think this is probably more common than we recognize. This little thing of, I should talk to that person. I don't know why. And that's the fun stuff. I think when you start to allow that to happen, it's amazing the things that come. It can be sending that email. It can be uh, having a conversation. But it is that thing that you're talking about. You can't really put your finger on it, but you see a picture of somebody or there's something that comes up. And you're like, you know what? I'm going to reach out. And so I think it is the bravery. At first, it can be really scary for a lot of people to do these things. But as you start to do it and you start to see the feedback and the, this positive wave that comes from this stuff, it becomes undeniable. And then you start gaining the confidence, I think, to follow that intuition. And I've noticed this, that women tend to be better at this than men, which isn't surprising, being sort of the motherly, you know, taking care of kids and this type of thing. It's a, that's sort of built into their, their DNA, I think, to some degree. And so I think for most women, and, and this tends to be with sensitive people, so if you have health issues and you're a very sensitive person to either foods or chemicals or, or even emotions, I tend to see that they're sensitive to everything. And that means sensitive to the energies that exist on this sort of intuitive level as well. So I think some of it is just a matter of recognizing your power. And a lot of times people say, oh, I'm such a sensitive person as a disempowering thing. And I'm thinking, wow, no, like that's a really powerful tool if you can learn to unharness that and understand it, because then you can open up that that new uh, sensory perception, right? So it's a new sense that you can access if you have the wherewithal to listen to it and then foster it. I think just like anything else, playing the piano, it's a practice. You have to practice it. And if you're suppressing it, then it's understandable that you're not going to be good at it at first. So I think just allowing that to unfold is so powerful. What would you say are long-term solutions or a long-term formula for businesses and organizations uh, today? I think from my perspective in the business world, the corporate standard business world, what I recognized was a problem was that there was a, a lack of the ability for employees to unleash their full potential. So I think the business probably needs to start with the employees and figure out ways that they can unleash the potential that are within their staff and allow them the freedom and the capacity to express that. And that can be a difficult thing for a lot of standard companies. But I think if we can foster that employee development, allow employees to really bring everything that they have to the table, because a lot of times employees are stuck in a box. They're stuck in this, this way of operation and this is their role. And I think there's not a lot of freedom to move outside that role. And of course, this is how we train kids from in school. We keep them in their lane and this is how it works. But I think there's so much untapped potential in the existing staff that you already have so it's just depending on your industry and how you operate, how can we unleash that? How can we bring that to the surface? Because there's so people are smarter than the roles that they're placed in and they have so many more talents. And so I think that's a very simple way that companies can start to foster 
greater development in their in their own company. But then I think the other part that is inevitable, and we've been seeing this for years, is companies that have a focus on something bigger than profit, whether that be the environment, whether that be humanitarian aspects of things. But I think the millennials are, are expecting this out of companies now, that there's, some, there's a bigger, grander vision for the company beyond profit. And so I think working that in any way you can, I think is a really smart decision. And it's happening. I mean, I, I, don't, I think the sort of trajectory has been set on that. I think we've sort of crossed that tipping point where companies are now moving in that direction. And the ones that will survive are going to be those companies. But I think it doesn't need to be in this sort of big, grandiose thing as much. I think working on the community is powerful. And this is maybe a, an area where businesses aren't focused because we all have access to the entire world now through the, through the web. So there's more profit, there's ability to succeed, there's ability to tap resources, et cetera. But I think what will be a very cool thing in the future is that you will see businesses start to focus on their local communities. I think this will be a big turning point because the community has been neglected to this point. The family unit, the community have all taken a backseat to this global expansion. And I think when we return to some sort of community-based thing, I think you're going to start to see things thrive at the community level. So I think it's we have to take a dual perspective on this. Business that is good for the community, businesses that are good for the world, businesses that access the world, businesses that mostly focus on the community. I think this is where we're going to really start to see a shift in the greater health. And I don't mean physical health. I just mean the societal health because societal health is really, really poor right now. And I think as we bring this back, um, this community-focused efforts, I think that we're going to start to see that change. Um, yesterday, flying uh, into Sardinia, I was sitting next to a guy from, um, from Mumbai and he was working for the Tata Group. He was telling me about um, the fact that it is an old company, of course, has been there forever. So people are, also because of their strong moral and ethic compass of that company, they're very much trusting the company. So if something, if it's a natural disaster that's happening around the corner in the area, they are not even thinking, oh, somebody is going to fix this. There is this, the state is going to fix it. it they're right. thinking Tata Group will fix this. And they're immediately sending out loads of resources and people to help out, to figure this out and to help people in this very emergency uh, situations. That's exactly where you want the company to be, right? To be part Absolutely. of the local area. And this is, of course, a huge global company, but they demonstrate this power, if you like, on the spot. Yeah, and this is something that we saw in, in the places that we traveled. In Okinawa, it was an 85-year-old guy still running a company. In fact, I think he was running four companies. It was really cool because I asked him how long you're going to do this. And he said, and I knew the answer, but I wanted him to say it. And he said, I'll do this till I die. There was no retirement in his future. But one of the stories he was telling us is that it was him and about 10 or 12 other men, for whatever reason, it was all male. But there was, and I forgot the name of it, but there's um, this thing that they do where they each, they each put in $1,000 into this sort of pool or this pot every month. And when one of the people needed the totality of the money that's been put into this thing, they could use it for fixing up a house, buying a new car, investing in their business, whatever it was. So they all pulled their resources together to help this small little community. This is a conscious effort that they made. Um, so these types of things, and that's just one small example that's not company specific, but there are ideas out there that we need to start engaging with and opening our minds to on a company level. And this can be small, this can be large, but there are these things out there. In Ikaria, 50 years ago, they were, and even probably more recent than that, they were all working together to make the village a better place. There was no competition. You know, if somebody needed their house fixed up, they would all come together and they would all help this person fix up their house. There was no charge, there was no you know, IOUs, there was nothing like this. So we have to recognize that in the context of the work that I've been doing, the community was everything. They were there to support each other. They were there for each other. There wasn't a competitive nature to this. And there wasn't always money exchanging hands. It was we're here as a community and we work together because we all benefit when we work together. So I think this can come back, you know, mm -hmm. farmers markets and co-ops and these little organizational kind of things, these entities that are there that don't rely on the state, that don't rely on bigger organizations to fix them. I think this is where we need to go back to because 
right now you can create companies that basically exist in the cloud, right? There's literally no headquarters. You have people all over the world that are working together through the cloud, and this is such a really cool thing. But what that really does is gets rid of the community altogether, because all you have is people spread throughout the world, and there is no community. So I think that we can have those, but we also need to come back to this community-centric model of building up our communities because we need each other. We are tribal people. We can't exist without other people. And so when you go to these communities and you feel the connection, it's very powerful. We just need to rebuild that a little bit. If we assume that right now you have all doors open to you and all kinds of resources available, so that's not an issue, what would you then innovate or change immediately? So this is actually something we're, we're looking at right now with the company that I'm focused on. Um, we want to go into smaller communities, smaller towns and cities, and let's say retrofit them, change them in a way that will foster health and a better communal organization. So this is very possible. You can go and basically redesign a little town so that they have better communities, so that they foster health. And so this is actually what we're focusing on right now as a future possibility, and it's a very real possibility. And I think this is sort of my dream, is to either build towns and villages from the ground up in a way that is obviously better than what we've designed in most US places, or to retrofit an existing town so that it is designed for walking, designed for community gardens. You have parks, you have schools starting later. All these little things that we can do from a societal level to change the way that they operate. And I think if we can just take a few places here and there and continue to build on that, I think the whole place can shift. And so that's, that's really my big vision is to shift the way that we even organize our towns and cities. Wonderful. I mean, I've, I've heard about, for example, in, in parts of Asia and especially in China, where they have also the, in certain places, the opportunity to bring something up from the ground because they're just expanding so much that you need to build from scratch. Right. And they have that advantage. But what is typically done then is, you know, the perfect building materials, the perfect, uh, you know, environmentally friendly 360 degree systems and so on. But these aspects that you are mentioning are, is a totally different thing. That's the other dimension in terms of also how to adapt to a healthy lifestyle in terms of everything else, not just the physical material. And that's the thing. I think we have to change the way humans interact with their environment. And if we can provide an environment that is more friendly for that, then humans will want to do this. And I noticed this when I come to, to Italy, when I was in Florence the first time. I think I walked maybe 10 or 12 kilometers a day because Florence is a very walkable city. Whereas in the States, in the places that I live, I don't walk because it's not, it's not friendly for walking. Um, when I was in uh, Ljubljana in Slovenia, I think in 2013, 2014, something like this, from my, what I understand, they designated the downtown area walking only. So they prohibited cars from going to this downtown area. And apparently this was a big stir, this caused a big stir. They didn't really like this. The businesses were not happy with this decision. It was not a good thing. And then immediately all the businesses started seeing greater profits, greater foot traffic. And it was a wonderful thing for the town, for the city. And I think they even won like the European Green Award or something to that effect for their design of the city. All they did was exclude cars from this certain uh, vicinity downtown. And when I was there, and it's so walkable, and it was just a very friendly place to be from the way that I wanted to interact with the city. And so I, there's so many obvious things like this, and I, I find them throughout Europe, I find them in Central America. There's, they definitely exist in many places, but there's not a lot of this in the United States. Some of our older cities like Boston and some of these type of things, New York is very walkable and this type of thing, but these smaller towns and these cities that are mostly in the West, it's very difficult to walk. And so I think if you just change the way that we, the city is designed so that humans interact with it differently, you're gonna see more community, you're gonna see more walking, you're gonna see more parks. This is how we change things. You, you can't expect an individual. If I go to a, somebody that I'm working with, I say, you just need to walk more. You know, Instead of driving to the post office that's a mile away, and you should be walking because that's better for your health. They know that. This is, I'm not teaching them anything new, but it's not friendly to walk. There's 
cars and there's no people and there's these, you're walking along this busy road. So if we just redesign these things, I think people will naturally engage with them. What do you think about how the idea of hyperloops? <laughs> like you live in Stockholm, you work in Berlin, and over the day you come back. I think that's it's very interesting. I think long distance travel is fantastic. We can do that very quickly. Great. But I also think we need to spend more time in our community. So I think we can do both. But what I don't like is this driving just to drive. Short distances doesn't make any sense, but it's the way the cities are designed. They're designed for cars, they're not designed for people. And if you could uh, give one piece of advice to leaders, however you define those, what would that be? That's a really good question. I think it depends on the industry. I mean, I think we need to have the strength to look at the long-term picture. Many people are focused too much on the short-term and we're skipping this longer-term uh, viewpoint. So anything that, even if it's beyond ourselves or beyond our own life or, or beyond our own position at a company, you know, we see this in government a lot, right? This need for immediate gratification. And I think this is in response to a lot of the way that we think. The people, the community, we all think in these short-term results-driven ways. And I think if we can sacrifice that to some degree for the longer-term good, I think that's really maybe where we need to focus. So I, th I think if we can just have the fortitude to look beyond the short term and think in more longer term ways, this is good for everybody. And uh, somebody said to me the other day, that, you know, the reason the companies in general exist is because you and I and everybody else allow them to. Right. And that's kind of a healthy perspective because they're not there for the shareholder value. Right. You know this religion, so to say, that we've adopted in order to <laughs> defend a lot of things we do. It's for all of us, right? We right. exist for a reason. Absolutely. And I think as consumers or as customers, we need to sort of take back our power in that regard. And, and we see this in, in certain ways, but in a lot of ways we don't. We complain about the companies that we don't like. Well, maybe we should stop giving them our money. Businesses will always respond to the consumer. And so to some degree, I think it's on the consumer. I don't really place a lot of um, responsibility on companies necessarily. I think if the company can take responsibility for things, I think that's fantastic. But at the end of the day, if you've got a company that's destroying the environment and is at the expense of everybody else, don't give them, their, them your money and they won't do it. So I think it's on us as consumers to take back our power and say, I don't like what you're doing. I'm not going to support you. Even if that means a little bit of suffering or a little bit of hardship to pay more for this over here or to, to not have that and do this instead. This is where we come in as a society, as a, as a population, as an individual. So I think for us, if we just tell the companies what we want via the way we spend our money, um, they'll change or they won't exist because they can't. And in a way, we're just a Facebook group away right? if we want to organize ourselves and, and speak our voice, which a lot of people are doing already. And what about you? If you were to give advice to yourself, let's say 15 or so years ago, what would that be? The advice that I would give primarily would be to let go a little bit, to not worry so much, just to let things happen. Have a little more trust and faith in the way things will play out. Of course, tell myself that, that I'm not as smart as I think I, I am. Humble myself a little bit in that regard. But the biggest lessons that I've continued to learn are just to let go and trust and enjoy the process because there is no goal. There is no end game here. We're all going to the same place. And for me, the constant reminder and challenge is to be present, to enjoy the process. However things unfold, they unfold. And the happiness that I have is all dependent on my perspective. So just to be in the moment, to let things play out, to let the process unfold without so much emotion one way or the other. It's probably more of a Buddhist or Taoist philosophy mm -hmm. that I would probably give myself just to keep going enjoy the process and, and let things go. Yeah, because just being in this, as you say, in the moment, so difficult. Every day is a new beginning, they say, but at the same time, it's so easy to get kind of wound up in the daily agendas of other people and of yourself. And the future, right? Yeah. Especially, you know, 15 years ago for me, it was mm -hmm. all about the future. And even still, to some degree, we, we have this dream or this vision about what we want and who we will be in our future. And I think that's great to have a broad perspective on where we want to go, but 
at the same time, I think if we focus too much on what we want and instead on having gratitude and, and appreciation for what we have and who we are today, I think we miss the big picture. And this goes back to longevity. Why live a long time if you're not enjoying each day as you get there? So we have to just be happy to be here uh, because there's, again, there's nowhere we're going. There's, there's not an end goal here. There's no finish line. There's no, there's no direction. We just have to let things play out. And so it might take a little bit of a reminder every, every now and again to be present, to be here, and to be grateful for whatever it is that's going on. But that's not a message that I was taught growing up. I was n not taught this in school. You know, my parents didn't teach me this. No, nobody really taught me to just be grateful for what I have and be present and enjoy the now. You know, because that's kind of all there ever is, right? It's just the now. So if I could have that perspective a little earlier on in life, I think that would have been helpful, um, especially as things, you ride the highs and lows. You know, you can start to appreciate every bit of that as opposed to when things are, are low, you're trying to get back to the high, and when they're high, you're trying to send them higher, right? I mean, just let it all play out and enjoy the, enjoy the ride. And that's perhaps something that could be integrated into, as you say, the education system and and so on as well, not to delegate everything to the education, but still that's where we in a way grow up and that's where our Absolutely. platform is. I've noticed, for example, in large um, parts of Asia in the schooling system, there is something that you would call discussions about life wisdom and so on, a bit of a philosophical approach, which is there. And in our westernized kind of education, it's so, you know, it's like an industrial system almost. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, it's so full of a rational, scientific mind. Everything is in the mind kind of. Uh, so if we would integrate that, I think we would benefit a lot. So it's not something that we just hope is happening as a discussion or as a reflection at home, but also in school. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think this is probably my biggest transformation because I was very good at math. I was an engineer. I was type A. I was very methodical and everything was in my, my head and I could control things that way. But the shift for me was getting out of my head into my heart and allowing sort of the, that side of things to come through. And, and it's a big problem that I see in science. Coming from the scientific world, we're missing the philosophy. We're missing the bigger picture. And I think this is very dangerous, actually. This is a very, very dangerous point that we are coming upon because technology is getting so advanced. And at this point, it's basically limited to our imagination where we can go with technology. We're going to be doing amazing things in the next 10 or 20 years that we can't even think of right now. And that has very good promise for humanity in so many ways, but it also it comes with a lot of peril if we don't take the correct philosophical approach to things. It goes back to all the ancient traditions, you know, Taoism and Buddhism and Christianity and the Greek philosophers, they all have this underpinning of philosophy that was always married to science, even in the West. So, you know, we look at yoga, all these things have a philosophy built into the way that they, they lived. And so it's one thing that I think we've really, really gotten away from is the bigger picture, the big life story, the philosophy, the art of living, right? This way of being that technology is just a tool. And if we don't have a good direction for that, then I think we really open ourselves up to some pain and suffering coming down the pike. And, and I'll give you one clear example of this right now that we're on the precipice of is, is 5G technology. From my, my perspective, 5G is very dangerous. It's a very, very dangerous tool. I really hope it doesn't get unleashed um, because I think we're going to see a lot of health problems as it comes out. And I'm not the only one to think this. There's many, many people that, that take this viewpoint. So this is just one example. The, the, the sword is getting sharper. And it's just a matter of how we're going to use this sword. And so I think we have to just be very cognizant of this. And this is where alignment with nature and the philosophy comes and in. And what kind of um, health issues would that be? We're already seeing them with the current technology. Um, you have a lot of people that are sensitive to electromagnetic radiation. They get fatigue. They get uh, headaches. They get, I mean, you name it. It goes into diabetes. It goes into heart disease. It goes, it, literally every condition that we have. We have to remember we're electrical beings. This has been known in the Ayurveda and Chinese medicine and, and now even in the Western sciences, we're starting to recognize this. It will, of course, affect us. It already does. It's just not going to be good. We're going to see chronic fatigue. We're going to see neurodegenerative disorders, all kinds of psychiatric disorders. This is all in the electromagnetic 
spectrum that these things start to come about. And so all the studies that we've done on this technology, they're lagging. They're on 2G and 3G technology. We're way beyond that now. And these things are get infinitely more powerful. And the trick is, and the problem is, is that the cooler technology becomes, the more we want to use it. The more we use it, the more it gets integrated. So now you have a more powerful technology just on the surface of it, and then it's being used more. So this is where I see the problem coming in because you and I both remember a day when we didn't even have cell phones and mobile phones didn't exist, and yet we have to operate with them. So the use is now becoming so endemic that the greater the technology, uh, the greater the power, and the greater the use, we really start to open ourselves up to health issues. And I, I guarantee this will happen if we see this unleashed. I mean, they're talking about using 5G on these little mini towers, if you will, spread throughout New York City on every block. I mean, this is a problem. This is not a good thing. So again, it's not really a fear thing. It's more of how can we understand, how can we take a philosophical standpoint, uh, this idea of aligning with nature and doing things the right way as we unleash these technologies and unleash these sort of scientific understandings um, because they've been separated. Even science, you know, let's say quantum physics mm. is totally disconnected from the philosophy of things. What is consciousness? What is life? Where does this come from? We, all these things, they're not asking themselves these questions enough. And so I think we have to bring these back together for the big sciences, for our, our little mundane lives and how we operate in the world. We need this philosophical underpinning. And I think you're completely correct that having that integrated into an educational system, hopefully in the, through parents and in the family, but also through the education system, I think this is a really valuable tool that if we can bring that back, we will start to have a greater appreciation for things as we go. What do you think, if there's one, like one, one most important thing for companies to focus on right now, what would that be? Any way that they can bring back, bring humanity into the company. I know that's a sort of a vague statement, but I think there's a lot of corporate logos that don't have this humanity baked into them. Coca-Cola is a good example of this. I don't know what they do f from a human perspective. You know, whereas you take a company that I'm familiar with in the Pacific Northwest, which is REI, which is a sort of outdoors company. Anytime you can bring a little bit more humanity into the into the company, I think is a good thing. And and again, how you do that, I don't. It's going to depend on on what kind of company you are. But I think people are moving away from products just as products. I think they're looking at company as what do they represent? Who are they? What do they stand for? You know, what are they doing in the world? I think this is inevitably what consumers are, are starting to gear towards. So I think if we can just bring back more humanity into the company in any and all ways, whether it be internal or external, I think that's just a really smart decision to make going forward. What's your view on the diversity perspective of companies and especially thinking about different age groups because um, now when I'm also very much interacting with different companies, I tend to see that there is a certain concentration of all the so-called creative interesting work is done by people who are like 20, 35 more or less. And then people above that age group is feeling a little bit isolated or being tagged as need to adapt, need to understand new dimensions, da 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 da. Sometimes it's also, and they admit it, done for the reasons of the fact that the people who are younger cost less. <laughs> and sometimes it's really only done because they want this kind of digital muscle uh, and creativity muscle to explode in the company. So they kind of inject it through younger people. Yeah, this is a tough one. There's a lot of issues right now in the US with this, particularly male, female. But I think I'm not in favor of enforcing diversity just for the sake of diversity. I think that's a really bad business decision from the bottom line. I think it's also bad for the culture. What I am in favor of is understanding that, and this is just the way it is, older people have a different perspective than younger people. It just tends to be the case because they've lived more life, they came from a different time. They just think differently, they operate differently, they have different perspective on life. So I think we have to recognize the value of that, of what that can mean to a certain group or part of a company. And same thing with the older, if you have a, a more older people in a group, bringing in some youth just to inject new ideas, I think is a really smart way to do it. So I think if we can see the value in each sort of uh, subgroup or subpopulation, men and women, and a lot of the science and technology types of businesses that I'm familiar with, mostly male driven. 
mostly because males tend to gravitate towards that more than some of the females. And that just tends to be a skill set. They think about things differently. Um, they're more focused in their thinking as opposed to women who tend to be really broad thinkers because they have to be and they're really good at multitasking and doing a million different things. But that doesn't mean that it should be only male. And if it's only male, bringing in the feminine, the female perspective is hugely powerful in that setting. Mm -hmm. Same thing if you have a female dominated, bringing in some male perspective. And it doesn't mean you force that. It just means allowing that to sort of occur and also seeing the benefit of doing so. And cultural, same thing with cultural perspectives. What I'm a fan of is looking at the subgroups and seeing where they can stir the pot and create new opportunity and open the doors, unleash the, the potential. Because sometimes that's all it takes is just a new perspective. And all of a sudden, new ideas come up and, and new solutions come up. So I like to look at diversity as a, as a way of bringing in different strengths. And I think if you don't have that diversity, then you're going to miss out on a strength that's not necessarily built into that group or that part of the company. But diversity, just for the sake of diversity, I think is a really bad idea. We're starting to move this way in the U.S. and I, I don't like it. I don't really think that that's a smart decision. I think it creates a really bad culture. Uh, it doesn't result in, in positive things down the line. I think letting diversity sort of come up naturally, but also seeing the benefits of interjecting some youth or some wisdom or male or female or different cultural perspective. I think it's a really powerful tool that if companies can, can utilize that effectively without sort of mandating things, I think that could be yeah, should, should come from their from the values rather yeah, than absolutely. be it. And realize the strengths, you know, I mean, there's a reason that older people think differently. And I know this because I went and spoke with 90 and 100 <laughs> year olds. They think in a totally different way. And it's very valuable for somebody that's, you know, young who doesn't have that experience yet. So I think there's just a lot of strengths in each group that we need to sort of tap into. Yeah, and, and, and I guess the older people are also speaking some universal truth. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think there's just something you recognize when you live on this planet for 90-something years. Is there anything we didn't cover that you would like to highlight more? I want to see people follow their passions, follow their, their dreams. I think this is something that came up in our travels and speaking with a lot of the people around the world is they tend to enjoy their life, enjoy the things that they were doing. I don't see this a lot in the U.S. We tend to follow things for the wrong reasons, for status, for money, for this prestige. We're just following things for the wrong reasons. So I think there's two things that I've seen play out really well for people, which is that they follow their passion as a profession. So they're told that they can't play this instrument as a profession, it's never going to pay the bills, etc. And they totally disregard that advice and they follow it because that's what they want to do. And sure enough, it works out. That tends to be the case. The other way that I've seen this work out is people will do whatever job that they have and they don't really like it, but they do it because it pays the bills and that allows them to follow their passion and purpose. So I think there's kind of two ways to do this. The passion doesn't always have to be the job, but allowing the job to take over every part of your life and not allowing you to follow what you really love, I think is a really big disservice to yourself. So what I've noticed that when people start to follow their, their passions and just do the things that they really love, it fixes their health problems. I've seen people that have bring in art into their life and their health problems go away. They just start painting and it's like, how does that happen? I don't know. It just, you're expressing yourself in a creative way. And then other people that have this perspective where they just start to transform the way they think and follow this idea, this thing that lights them up and their whole life changes. The trajectory goes in some weird way that they could have never predicted because they just finally did something that they enjoyed and that they were passionate about. So I think if I can encourage anybody, it's to follow that, whatever it is, as weird as it is, just to follow that passion and do it. Because even if it doesn't lead anywhere, it's going to light you up, which is, I think, really what the whole point of this is, right? It's to be happy and enjoy this. So, so I think it's just a, it's a real profound thing that we can follow that we're not really taught enough. It's sort of kept in this higher level. We're told this when we're kids, right? Like, oh, you can do anything. You can be anything. But then at some point, it's like reality sets in and we're like, okay, no, you know, do what's practical, do what's smart. You know, this, this makes more money. This, there's a lot of opportunity over here. You definitely want to go in, in tech, you know? And it's like, well, I don't, I don't like tech, right? So I think we have to disregard some of that stuff do what we enjoy, and I think good things happen when you do that. So true, that's the best advice. 
And as a final, very kind of big question is, what do you think the world needs most at this time? Oh my gosh, we need so much. The world needs a greater sense of uh, connection. I think we need to recognize that we are all in this together, that the separation is complete illusion, that there are massive differences in people, and the differences are the beautiful thing, and that at the core of it, we're all the same. And so I think that's just what we need. We're, we're too isolated, we're too segmented, whether it be by nations or by cities or by genders or by sex or by whatever the case is. We are way too separated. This is a vague statement, but there are people that benefit from that separation. And those are the ones that are in control, that are in power. Um, and I think if we want to change that, then all we have to do is, is not listen to that, not buy into this ridiculous notion that there is good people and bad people and let go of all that nonsense, that we're, we are all connected and that we all share the planet. I think we, we can no longer ignore what is happening in China with the massive pollution that is causing problems for the rest of the world. The things that the people that we're doing from the US standpoint, we're all affecting each other. And we have to recognize that just because it may not be affecting me here, it is affecting somebody somewhere. And so I just think we need to take a global perspective on things and a more unified perspective on things and get rid of these boundaries, get rid of these artificial separation. It doesn't exist. And it's a perspective. This isn't an actionable thing necessarily, mm -hmm. but if the perspective changes, then our actions start to change. But when you say there are certain people that benefit from us being disconnected, who is this? That's a good question. Anybody that is in control and in power right now, that's thriving off of this disconnection. Mostly, I would say, government agencies, big multinational corporate interests, Whoever is going to benefit from this. And I don't even know if I even like that statement that I just made because I think it's it's hard to put your finger on and I'm much more of a practical person. I like to stick to the practical and I don't like to blame. But I think inevitably we do, what we see is that there is this apparent desire to separate, to create separation amongst groups, amongst people. And whoever that is, it can be in a small company, it can be multinational organizations, whatever the case is, it seems to be there because it's happening. We're constantly seeing this message. And I think whoever is sending that out, whoever is promoting this message, we need to ignore that. I don't think this is a real thing. And if we can just let those barriers go, I think we'll start to see a much better shift in the way we operate. But for sure, if you want to disempower something, the best way to do it I mean, look at the war zones and so on. I mean, that's the fear strategy, right? Absolutely. Any kind of fear to disconnect people disempowers them. So if you want to have control, for sure, that's a, good, a very good reflection. Yeah. Right. So thank you so much, uh, Jason. You were such a gift. Uh, thanks for sharing. And also to find out more about you and your work, where do the people head? They can go to um, humanlongevityfilm.com. Uh, find more about our film there and what we're going to be doing uh, in the future. Mm -hmm. And they can find me on Facebook just by searching my name. That's probably the two best places, I would say. Great. And uh, they will also find all the links and uh, the pod show notes on uh, corporateunplugged.com slash podcast. So remember to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Acast. And I truly appreciate if you share this episode with your network and friends for impact. Share it with the people you know would benefit from hearing Jason's story. So thanks for listening and until next time, live with purpose and remember to unplug. Ciao from Sardinia. Thank you. Have a good one.